Good morning. The passage this morning that we will be looking at is Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Uh, it's page 191 in your pew Bible, if you're looking at that. Deuteronomy 21, starting in verse 1. In December, Jenny and I made our first visit to the South Shore area and to this church. And uh, one of the things that we... Oh, apparently I'm supposed to dismiss the children. So kindergarten, first grade... Um, if you want to go to children's church, now is the time before I get all riled up. <laughs> so yeah, December, Jenny and I, we, uh, we came to the South Shore area for the first time and uh, we visited this church. And one of the things we did was we um, visited, we took a tour of the new facility. And at that point, it was kind of bare bones, but we, can, we could get a sense of the building. Um, so we, we got to see the, the beautiful new sanctuary and the, the children's wing and all of that, and, and we were thrilled. We were very excited um, by what we saw. One of the questions that kind of lingered underneath the surface for probably both of us is, or was, why? Why is South Shore Baptist Church constructing this new building? Knowing the answer to this question would reveal a lot about the heartbeat of this church family. And so, we were both curious. Why? In March, we had the opportunity to kind of bounce around various homes. And we got to know some of you, in fact. And uh, we were amazed at the collective enthusiasm and the unified energy that many of you had towards what God is doing in this church and what God might do in the future of this church. And again, we were just thrilled to see this and hear this. As I talked to Jeremy and others, I got a better sense of the heartbeat of this church, which is to make much of Jesus Christ. Amen? To bring glory and attention to Jesus. And also a part of that big vision is to love and serve people, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel to those that have not heard. And again, we just got excited as we thought about potentially coming to this church and here we are. I would imagine that if you're anything like me, then your heart is a mixed bag. You hear and see and sometimes feel this awesome vision for the church to make much of Jesus, to make disciples of Jesus. But sometimes your heart wanders from this vision. And so we must be vigilant. If I had the ability somehow to kind of dissect your heart, to see on the other side of the veneer, I wonder what kind of hidden motivations and desires I would see. Maybe you're excited that South Shore Baptist Church will have more influence or more power in this community. Maybe you want to see this community grow numerically and financially. Maybe you're most excited about the toys and the perks and the comforts that a new facility will bring to you and your family. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with these motivations, but they don't quite get at the heart of God, do they? We don't have big enough hearts or good enough hearts 
to encompass the kinds of things I believe God wants to do in and through this church. Good thing the success of South Shore Baptist Church is not entirely contingent upon the consistency or the holiness of our heart motivations. Right? But we must prepare ourselves. We must prepare our hearts. We must fight to maintain a passion for the glory of Jesus and a passion for lost souls. This morning I want to remind us of why, why South Shore Baptist Church exists, really why any church exists. So let's look to the Word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting in verse 1. If a man is found slain, lying in a field in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the body to the neighboring towns. Then the elders of the town nearest the body shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has never worn a yoke and lead her down to a valley that has not been plowed or planted and where there is a flowing stream. There in the valley they are to break the heifer's neck. The priests, the sons of Levi, shall step forward for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. Then all the elders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall declare, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. Accept this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord. And do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent man. And the bloodshed will be atoned for. So you will purge from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into, the hand, into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. If a man has two wives and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. Let's pray. Father, we are a sinful, unreliable people with fickle hearts. We know your heart for this church. We know your desires for this South Shore community. And yet, our pride and our selfishness and our laziness creep in and distort the big vision you have given us. Forgive us, Father. This morning, give us a fresh vision of Jesus Christ. Give us a fresh vision of His awesome, extravagant mercy. Build up our faith in You. 
Make us look more like Jesus. Deepen our love for people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you're probably wondering, what does this passage have to do with what I just said? (laughs) We'll see. So, the passage begins with an unsolved murder. Before we dive into the unsolved murder, there's three sets of laws that you see that, that I just read to you. Three sets of laws. The first set of laws deals with this unsolved murder. The situation is pretty straightforward. A guy is murdered. It says in verse 1 that he is slain, but we don't know who did it. So the first question that I had of this text is, why in the world would God be concerned about this unsolved murder? Why would he be concerned about this unsolved murder? Well, flip the page uh, if you're using the Pew Bible. Look at John, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Various laws are given throughout this chapter. And then Moses says this at the end of the chapter. This is the last sentence in verse 23. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So one of the reasons... One of the reasons that Moses gives for all of these laws is he's trying to prevent the land from being desecrated or defiled. Land was a very important thing for God's people. It was a physical expression of God's provision and His care. It was given by God to produce life. And so any unlawful death would defile the land. And so this unsolved murder defiled and desecrated the land. It polluted the land with sin. So God provides this ritual. But there's another, another sense in which God, or another reason God is concerned. And that's because he, God holds the people of Israel, and in particular the neighboring town as we read, He holds them somewhat responsible. Look at the end of this first section in verse Nine. So you will purge from yourself the guilt of shedding innocent blood. So the people of Israel, in particular this town that is nearest the murder, they have some sort of responsibility. They are holding the guilt of this innocent man. So God provides a ritual, a specific process that if you do this process, it will rectify the situation. There's a lot of details here. We don't have time to get into all of it, but... Basically, there's a lot of people involved. You see elders and judges. You see the Levitical priests. It begins with the elders of the closest town. They perform this ritual. They take an unblemished cow. In other words, a cow that has not been worked. They bring it to a piece of land that has not been worked as well. An unblemished piece of land with a flowing stream. And then they break the cow's neck. Now, why... Did they break the cow's neck? Is this a sacrifice? It could be a sacrifice for sins, to atone for sins. We see language of atonement weaved through this passage. But there's no altar and there's no bloodshed, which is what we should expect. It could be a vicarious execution of the unknown murder. Okay, this kind of explains maybe a little bit better what it, what's going on here. In any case... In any case, the bottom line is that God provides a way to remove the guilt and the pollution that has come as a result of this innocent killing. So let's move on to the captive woman now. 
Entering the promised land, Israel is going to encounter lots of wars. We know that. Lots of neighboring nations are going to go to war with Israel. All the time it seems like this nation is in war. And so knowing how to deal with the prisoners of war, including captive women and children, it's going to become very important. Now in ancient Near Eastern culture, after a victory, captive women would be often beaten, raped, used as slaves for a time, and then discarded. So this is the culture that Israel is living within. And so these laws that God provides are to protect and care for this captive woman. Not to give the victorious soldier license to do more. Or to do whatever. So first, he's commanded to make her his wife. Not someone to rape, not someone to beat, not someone that will serve him. That's below him, but to make her his wife. I mean, this is amazing. God commands, if you want this woman, you have to make her your wife. That's in verse 11. You see in verse 12, there's this command to shave her head and trim her nails and put aside her clothes. This is a renunciation of the old life, including the old pagan religion that she followed. She is to renounce that, and that's why she does these these kind of random to us things, and she's to take on the new life of an Israelite. In other words, she is being welcomed into God's household. Verse 13, the last half of the verse, talks about this month period where she is to mourn her father and her mother. You have to imagine, again, she has been ripped out of her family and placed into this new home. She doesn't know anyone. The customs are different. Everything's different. So she's been given this month where she can mourn her father and her mother. God is gracious to her. And then lastly, we see in verse 14 that if this husband, for whatever reason, wants to put her, put her to the side, doesn't want her anymore, he, he cannot sell her into slavery. He cannot treat her as a slave. He must treat her well. So what we see here is that God provides for the emotional, the physical, and even the spiritual needs of this captive woman who is an outsider. She is an outsider in every sense of the word. She's from a different land. She comes into this family. Um, It's very likely that most of these victorious soldiers already had wives. So imagine his wives and looking at this captive woman that comes into their home. There must have been some hatred and some difficulty and tension there. She's an outsider, and yet God sets up these rules to protect her. She's also vulnerable. Again, remember ancient Near Eastern culture, all the kinds of things that they would do, and yet God sets up these rules to protect her because she is in a weak spot. The third set of laws, looking at verses 15 through 17, this is the, 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 the situation here is an unfavored son or an unloved son. It's pretty straightforward. In Jewish culture, polygamy was allowed, but it wasn't necessarily condoned. And here we have a situation where a husband loves one wife more than the other. Okay? And God sets out these laws to protect the right of the firstborn son, especially in the situation when the son is from the unloved wife. 
You can imagine that the husband might, might want to redirect the firstborn's share to one of his favored sons. But here God steps in and mercifully says, No, I will protect the unfavored. I will protect the unloved. So what I want to do with this passage is I want to look at this passage through three lenses. This is a way that we can think about application. Okay, Look at this passage through three lenses. The first lens is what can we learn about God? This is perhaps the most important question that we can ask of really any passage of Scripture. What can we learn about God? The second question is what can we learn about ourselves? What can we learn about ourselves? And then the third question or the third lens that I want to look through is what can we learn about Jesus? So that's where we're going. Lens one, what can we learn about God? Well, as I've alluded to, God sets out these laws to protect three groups of people. To protect three groups of people. It shows his concern for three groups of people. The first group is the innocent who have suffered injustice. The innocent who have suffered injustice. Just like the town or the people of Israel. Just like the victim, the murdered one. The second group is the outsider or the vulnerable, like the captive woman. And the third group is the unloved and the unfavored or the unprovided for. And that's the firstborn son. As I was thinking about these three groups of people that these laws impact in the Old Testament this week, I realized that they exist in our society today. We can relate to the innocents who suffer injustice. The killing fields of Cambodia, genocides in parts of Africa, atrocities committed against the Jews in Hitler's regime. Then there's some that are a little bit more closer to home. The rise of sex trafficking and sex slavery, not only abroad, but even in our country. Did you know that this is the second largest, fastest growing criminal industry in the world? The rise of abortions, 46 million abortions performed worldwide in a year. Then there's examples perhaps too close to home. There's people in this room that have been victims. Victims of sexual and physical abuse. Victims of alcoholic spouses or parents. And we can make a long list of situations. We can also relate to the captive woman and the firstborn son, those who are outsiders, those who are unfavored and unloved, people with a different socioeconomic status. They may feel like an outsider. People of a different race, people of a different upbringing. Then there's different Classes of people, maybe the socially awkward or those that some of us would consider annoying. They feel like the outsider. They feel unloved, unfavored, neglected, cast out. People in this very room may feel like the outsider even here. may walk in and look around and see all these nice, beautiful families and beautiful people, little halos over their heads. And they might feel filthy and dirty and don't want to be here. 
but this is the place for them. They might feel like the outsider towards God or with God because they might feel some distance with Him. They might feel that filthiness, that dirtiness keeps them from God. So what we see here in this text is that we and Israel, we might be callous towards these kinds of people and yet God extends His extravagant grace to them. His mercy is wide. It engulfs all kinds of people. It's not just for the guy who regularly sits in the pew, gives his 10% to the church and attends Sunday school. It's for the single mother who never, who's never been married, who works two jobs just to stay afloat. It's for the young man in this room right now who struggles with pornography. It's for a grieving widow. It's for the broken, the lonely, the addicts, the messed up. And God's mercy is especially for the rest of us jacked up punks who think we've got it all together. Also known as the self-righteous. I don't know all the things that you are going through or that you've been through, all the ways that you feel like you are the innocent who have suffered injustice, the outsider or the unloved. I don't know, but I do know, based on the authority of Scripture, that God cares deeply for you. He cares deeply and profoundly for you. A few thousand years ago, God set these laws in motion to demonstrate His extravagant mercy and care for His people. And that same care, that same concern, that same affection is yours today. It's available to you. Do you believe that? Lens two. What can we learn about ourselves? Well, the first thing I see in this text as it's reflected back onto me is we do not naturally offer mercy. We are not naturally a mercy-giving people. These laws are in place to curb the natural tendencies of the people of Israel, which is not to offer mercy to the innocent. It is not to offer mercy to the outsider or the unloved. And of course we can relate. Our default setting is one which does not reach out in mercy, does not spill ourselves for other people. Our default setting is one that's only concerned about me and mine. But we see more here in the text. We see that God intends to extend His mercy through His people. I mean, that's astounding. He intends to extend His mercy through His people, through us. We're not watching a merciful God act while we are passively sitting on our bums. No, God mediates His mercy through us. The elders and the priests, they got involved. They stood in the gap. They did something. They, they broke the cow's neck. The victorious soldier, he marries the woman. He cares for her. He treats her well as his wife. The father chooses to give the firstborn share to the rightful firstborn son. We are called to mediate and extend God's lavish grace to all kinds of people. So the question comes to us this morning. What do you do? What do I do for the one who is innocent and suffers injustice? How do you handle the outsiders in your life? 
We've all got them. How do you protect the weak and the vulnerable in your midst? I had a friend when I was growing up named Brad. And Brad was a, he was a good guy. He was a good kid. I've known him since I was five. He went, went to school with me. And Brad, although he's a great kid, he was a little socially awkward because he had a mental handicap. He was slightly mentally handicapped. And so as you would imagine, children from when they were young would berate him and tease him incessantly. I remember in fifth grade, my teacher pulled aside myself and three or four others. And she said, if Brad is going to survive middle school and high school, then you need to go to bat for him. You need to mediate mercy to him. You need to step up for this kid. And to my shame, I didn't do that. I was kind of like Switzerland. Neutral. I didn't dive in and aggressively make fun of this kid, but I also didn't do anything to help him. I didn't extend mercy to him. I sat on the sidelines and occasionally laughed. Our 10-year high school reunion was a few years back, and I saw Brad and his son. And to our shame, very few of us said a word to Brad. I'm sure you might have similar stories. So how can we do this practically? How can we mediate God's extravagant mercy to the innocent, the outsider, and the unloved? Well, the first thing is we can pray. We can pray for those who are persecuting the innocent. We can also pray for those who are suffering as the innocent, as the outsider, as the unloved and unfavored. But perhaps the most important thing that you and I can do, and it's perhaps the hardest as well, is to step into their lives. Step into the mess and to love them. Lens 3. What can we learn about Jesus from this passage? These laws that we've looked at, they demonstrate God's extravagant, lavish, full, wide mercy. But only in part. There's only one perfect demonstration of God's extravagant mercy. And you know the punchline. It's Jesus. More than these Old Testament laws, Jesus Himself extends to all kinds of people His extravagant, His lavish mercy. And aren't we in need of it? Jesus said in Mark chapter 2 that He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. He came not for the righteous, but for sinners. When we look at this text, we see ourselves perhaps in Israel. We see ourselves perhaps in the town, the innocent town. Because like them, we too struggle with the guilt and the pollution of sin, each of us. And yet God makes a way to atone for our sins. God makes a way for us to be reconciled to God the Father. God forgives our sins. He gives us new life through Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection. 
Through Jesus, God rights the wrongs. He heals the broken places. He bandages up the weak parts, weak places in our hearts. He begins to deal with the sins that we struggle with and He he makes us holy. Like the captive woman, we too were once outsiders, distant from God, distant from God's people. And yet through Jesus, we find a new home. Through Jesus, we find a new community. Ephesians chapter 2, the last half of the passage, starting in verse 11, it's something you should read this week. It talks about how Jesus makes peace through His blood. He, he makes peace between us and God through His blood, and He makes peace between us and other people through His blood by gathering them up in the church. Look around you. We are such a diverse group of people in this room. And yet God gathers us up into this church because of Jesus. Like the firstborn son, we sometimes feel unloved or unwanted or not provided for. But God has poured out His immeasurable love. His immeasurable love for us in Jesus. Romans 8, at the end of the chapter, it talks about how we are, uh, how Christians uh, will never be separated from God's love. Never. Ephesians 3, the last half of the chapter, is a prayer where Paul prays that the Christians in the Ephesian church would be established in God's love. A love that's high and deep and wide. So what can we learn about Jesus? We learn that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus came to live, die, and be raised to reconcile sinners to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ meets the needs that this chapter presents. The need for atonement of sin. The need for community and belonging. The need for provision and love. In the mid-19th century, a young pastor and his congregation sought to build a church. It's a beautiful facility. 5,000 seats in the auditorium. Room for 1,000 kids. Imagine that. 900-person lecture hall. It's bigger than the sanctuary being built behind us. Kitchens, bathrooms, classrooms, offices, two balconies. This is a beautiful facility. And yet some people challenged this young pastor and his congregation, why would you build this building? How can this project be for God's purposes? But the young pastor insisted that indeed it was for God's purposes. He insisted that the church, that his church, would proclaim the mercies of Jesus Christ and extend in tangible ways the mercy of Christ to all kinds of people. During his first message, In this new facility, in his new church, he said these words. We shall see in this place people devoting themselves to God. We shall find ministers raised up and trained and sent forth to carry the sacred fire to other parts of the globe. Through us the whole earth shall receive blessing. If God shall bless us, he will make us a blessing to multitudes of others. Let God but send down the fire of the Spirit and the biggest sinners in the neighborhood will be converted. 
Those who live in the dens of infamy will be changed. The drunkard will forsake his cups. The swearer will repent of his blasphemy. The debauched will leave their lusts. Dry bones be raised and clothed afresh, and hearts of stone be turned to flesh. This young pastor was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he had a passion. He had a passion for making much of Jesus. And he had a passion for extending God's extravagant mercy to all kinds of people. And God blessed his church. Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London. Here's the thing. We could have world-class preaching from this pulpit. And we do. Jeremy Rennie is is a, a wonderful preacher and we appreciate him. We can have the best training structures in place. We can have the most strategic programs set up. We can launch great open houses and wonderful grand opening festivities all nicely packaged up and delivered to the South Shore area. But if our hearts hearts are not ready to extend God's extravagant mercy to all kinds of people, then we are not ready for this building. We are not ready for a new building. So why does this church exist? Is it to provide more comfort and more ease and accessibility and power and money for ourselves and our favorites? Or is it to provide more opportunity to die to ourselves, to serve the lonely, to love the broken, to befriend the awkward and annoying, to spill ourselves, to extend ourselves for all kinds of people, not just the ones we like, God has welcomed his enemies into his church. And we should do the same. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you for your extravagant mercy which has drawn sinners like me, sinners like us, to the foot of the cross and then to new life and then into this church. We thank you for this church. We thank you for its ministry. We bless and praise you for Jesus. And may we, Lord, as a church, extend your mercy to others. In Jesus' name, amen.